This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome to the 200th episode of Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm so happy to have actor, writer, director Viggo Mortensen with me for this one. Viggo Mortensen has told some great stories throughout his career, and now he's about to tell his most personal one yet with his directorial debut, Falling, which he's also written and stars in. Mortensen was born in New York City to a Danish father and American mother, and he grew up in Argentina and the U.S. His career is as varied as his background. His first roles were small parts in films like Peter Weir's 1985 thriller Witness, starring Harrison Ford, and 1990's Carlito's Way. He shot to fame in the early 2000s as Aragorn in Peter Jackson's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And after that, he's taken on many eclectic and diverse roles. He's worked several times with a director that many of us know as the master of the body horror genre, David Cronenberg. Among others, he starred in his thriller, A History of Violence, as well as Eastern Promises, for which he earned an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. He's also received Academy Award nominations for his role in Captain Fantastic and 2018's Green Book. In Falling, Mortensen stars as John Peterson, a gay man whose conservative and homophobic father Willis, played by the legend Lance Henriksen, who we probably know best as Bishop in the Alien movies. Willis is suffering from the onset of dementia. He's at risk of losing his farm, and his son John comes to help him move to Los Angeles, where John lives with his husband Eric, played by Terry Chen. The film also stars Sverig Gudnadsson as the younger version of the patriarch Willis and Laura Linney as John's sister. How was your trip out here, Daddy? I heard there was a lot of snow in Chicago. I don't live in Chicago. You asked me to come get you. Remember? You said you couldn't handle the farm anymore. The long winters, living all alone there. I would never say that. You did, Dad. You want to take advantage because you think I've lost my marbles. But I didn't! Fuck this. I want to tell you something. When a guy my age thinks he has to pee, he already did. Dad, stop. What? I talked to Mortensen, who's on the road. He's driving through Europe from Spain, where he lives, presenting and talking about his film. When we talked, he was in Copenhagen, which for him is like being back home. Now, Falling seems to be such a multi-layered film right now. It's about family and forgiveness, and what really are the limits of empathy when someone treats you badly. And it also seems to resonate in our political time, where empathy and communication on a global scale seem to be lacking more and more. And as Mortensen says, democracy, like a good marriage, takes hard work. 
And on a personal level for Viggo Mortensen, Falling has elements of his own family. I asked him if, in a way, he was keeping his parents and their memory, both the good and the bad, alive by making this movie. Yeah, you know, like right after my mother's funeral, when I started writing this, obviously those thoughts are very fresh. Images of her and my father, and especially of her and things, her voice, all that. And now, through the whole process of writing it, trying to get a finance, shooting, editing, now presenting it, even though, for example, it's not my mother up there, for me, Gwen, as embodied by Hannah Gross, who was great in that role, very special. Um, it's a fusion now. She's kind of, it's the same feeling I have about my mother. I have about her impersonation of Gwen. It's, a, you know, and I feel like even though she's not the one you see all the time in the story, she is the conscience of the story. She is the moral fulcrum. They're often arguing about her, their memory, their differing memories and feelings about her. And so that's very present. So I've kept her alive in a way, it's true, I suppose. And then it's changed, uh, you know, metamorphosis. Now Gwen is kind of, if I see Hannah Gross as that character, I've, all these images of my mother come to me. That's for sure. And to some degree with Lance, with a lot. Lance has moments where he doesn't really look like my dad, but every once in a while, his eyes do. And every once in a while, he'll a reaction he has on screen, I'm like, wow, that's uncanny. I mean, he never met my dad or anything, but there's something there, you know. So that, even though he's a very different kind of man, that character, there are moments. Even Sverrier has some moments like that. It was inspired by the dynamics of your own parents and family. What were those dynamics? Maybe not so unusual, but families, marriages of that the generation of my parents, you know, the, the traditional nuclear family model tend to have a, you know, the, the, the father as the boss in a way, and everybody in some way or another more or less adapted. I mean, exceptions always, but in general, that was the tradition. The father, you know, the mother did most of the child rearing and stuff around the house. Father went to work. And the father kind of was in charge, had final decisions on all the important things. Willis, as a character, the character that Sverdrup and um, Lance played, was a little, even more authoritarian, I suppose, or more inflexible. And with Willis, it was even to a more of an extreme where he wasn't really flexible. In other words, not a person who adapts, ever adapted well to changing times or or to the evolution of a relationship, to the evolution of the people in the relationship, whether it's with his wife or his children or anyone else. So change is difficult for a person like that. And um, you see that throughout the story in the flashbacks with scenes with Sverrir playing Willis. And in the present, you see the culmination of this attitude in an older man played by Lance Henriksen. And the tensions that causes when one person expects everyone else to adapt to his whims and his desires. <clears throat> so that was part of it. Um, I mean, it's a fiction. It's not really like my father. I mean, my father had some of that generation's traits, but the man of that generation. But he wasn't as extreme. In this story, I just wanted to explore the limits of that of com and of communication. Is there a limit? Uh, the limits of the possibility for empathy and compassion. I wanted to explore the idea of losing affection or losing 
love and then maybe regaining it somehow, perhaps through revisiting memories that, that even if they're different and they're subjective, they are memories of a time when there was the family bonds connected these people, especially Willis and John. Maybe through those memories, they can, they can light that flame again that connected them, right. maybe. Talking about Lance, this is certainly a career-defining performance that you have him doing. He's an overwhelming presence for the children in his mm. life. He's in the beginning stages of dementia. He's a racist. He's a homophobe. I mean, quite frankly, excuse my language, he's an asshole. Did they know you were a fag in the Army? Air Force. Did they know? I didn't really know it myself. Maybe that's a good thing. <clears throat> So, tomorrow... Lots of fairies seem to be working the airline business. Mostly, uh, the stewardess guys. More than the pilots, I guess. If we leave by 10, we'll get to the valley in time for the first appointment. Even 10.15 would work, okay? What appointment? And you directed this performance, which must have been quite hard for him to play. Tell me how you did that. Well, a lot of credit goes to Lance, obviously. He's given a very complex very layered, very subtle sometimes, and sometimes not subtle at all. Very brave performance, really, uh, with a lot of emotional range in it. Just the way he listens, the way he goes in and out of different kinds of consciousness. It's really amazing what he did. Uh, and he'd never had a role like this, obviously, with so much text and so many demands on him, I don't think. The closest he'd come to this was in the series Millennium, in the end of the 90s, but even that, it wasn't as difficult, I don't think, as demanding as this role. And he was drawn to the script, to the writing, to the character, but he was also intimidated by it, or he was just honest. He said, this is going to be difficult, you know. He even asked me early on at one point, he said, do you think I can do this? And I was going to say, because obviously I wouldn't be there, I was going to say, of course I can. So I just turned it on him and I said, do you not think you can? That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of mean. No, but I, I did it out of respect and out of, you know, if we're going to lay it on the table, it's like, it's okay. If you don't think you can, now's the time and... But I wasn't really, I, you know, I said that and he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, well, I do too. I just quickly said, well, I, I definitely do. I think you're going to do something really special. I know it's going to be difficult. And he said, no, very. And I said, but we're going to do this together, you know. And uh, I think you're going to do something special. What I didn't know is what he would do, which is more than I could dream of. And I think he's very happy with what happened. And he also confessed to me as we were preparing. He said, um, one of the things that's going to be difficult for me, not just this, the type of role, but I'm going to have to revisit some of my past and my childhood and my memories of my parents. And then he started telling me some of the stories about his childhood, which were horrifying. It was like some extreme version of, it was like Charles Dickens compared to, combined with Stephen King or something, mm -hmm. some story. Just, it was tough. He was a kid who was, grew up on the streets of New York. He didn't even know how to read until he was 30. And just a brutal kind of childhood in a way. But he would often be smiling or laughing about certain things that were not really funny. But I said, it's amazing that you don't, you're not bitter about this. And he said, well, it took me a long time <laughs> to get to that stage of acceptance. And uh, but I'm going to have to go back there if I want to do an honest job for you and revisit those feelings. So it wasn't just a personal story for me. It was definitely a personal story for the main actor, too, mm -hmm. which was good to know. And then to our surprise and pleasure, other actors and also all of the crew started telling us stories about their family. They were relating to the story in a very emotional, personal level, which was great. It was encouraging to us as we were doing our job. 
And for me, as you know, the director or the author of this story, I felt like, okay, we have, this is going to be a really good collaborative experience. And also, it's not just another job for these crew members. It's personal. And fortunately, I didn't ruin what we did together in the editing room. And, uh, and because I've had audiences have make similar comments, share stories about their families. And I think there are elements that you resonate with. Right. The relationship, it could be dealing with older parents. Could be dealing with people with dementia, which a lot of people do, or Alzheimer's. There's a lot of aspects that people seem to relate to. Also, societal, kind of the comparing the family as a mirror of what's going on in society, tension. Yeah, the lack of good communication, the polarization, the ideological divides, and fractures. You know, that those are things that people seem to be relating to, not just English-speaking countries, but in Spain and France and Belgium and everywhere I've been going really. Now was that David Cronenberg playing the proctologist? Yeah. Yeah, that's like the best casting since what Orson Welles <laughs> in the Muppet movie. <laughs> that was amazing. No, he's great. I mean, I, I I thought he would be great in the role, which is why I offered. It wasn't like a stunt. No, no, he was like, great. Yeah, that was the main goal. And for people who don't realize who he is, it just works. The scene works, and he's good casting. For those who know who he is, then it sort of has an additional layer of fun. First, it works. Secondly, he's a proctologist. <laughs> yeah, you have visual associations with his movies that often involve intrusions into the body. So you think, this is the last person I want with their finger inside me, you know? Um, but anyway, there's something amusing. And it's also, I didn't think of it at the time, but now that I look at the movie, it's like kind of an acknowledgement of the things I've learned from him and friendship. Like. Yeah. In your career, you seem to have been interested in parenting, specifically in parents and children under very, very pressured circumstances. Certainly this film, <laughs> I'm thinking about the father and child in the apocalyptic the road, um, Captain Fantastic, a father who lives off the grid. And I'm sorry to say that here we are, we're living in a pandemic in, in total political upheaval. We're raising our kids under very high pressure. What have you learned yeah. from these fathers? Well, there's lots of different ways of being a father or a mother. But I think, the, you know, in the same, the same things I learned about how to be a good director, I suppose, from the best directors like Cronenberg that I've worked with, not only to prepare a shoot very well, but even though you're ultimately responsible for how the, the family that is a film shoot runs and for the final product on screen, it's going to be more enjoyable and you're probably going to have a better time of it and end up with a better movie if you're open to and respectful of the questions and suggestions that it, the opinions of others, your crew, your cast, you got one shot to make this movie, good ideas can come from anywhere, right? So if you don't see that as a threat to your authority as a director, and some do, mm -hmm. like, no, nah, no, nah, it's my story, you know? If you realize, like I did just from seeing good examples, and I said it to the crew the first day before our first shot with me and Lance during a scene. We're standing outside and it was cold. And I said, well, welcome everybody. Before we start, I just want to say we're making this together. And you'll probably have ideas, I hope, suggestions, questions. And please feel free. I mean, don't say it when it's too late. Say it when you think of it. It can only help. I think it's in the same way for a parent. That's a good way to be. In other words, you, know, you are making ultimate decisions, certainly while they're younger until they get to be a certain age. But until then, and even after then, be open to what they have to say and their questions and their doubts and their fears and, you know, encourage them to feel that they don't have to live alone with their doubts and fears and their 
they're not the only ones that have these feelings and so forth and just ask them to share them if they they may want to sometimes they may not want to but remain open don't feel like if they question something that you're doing you're losing your authority you know what's, what's that about that's just an ego you know you can say no but then explain yourself feel like you need to you know i mean a good communication is is important so in a sense i think that's what makes a good good father and i do think that you know maybe communication is something we're more conscious of right now during this pandemic the importance of honest and uh open communication whether it's from our government to the citizens about what the hell's going on and what do they know but also between people who don't necessarily agree you know there's in a way i feel like there's two pandemics that are really at a peak right now one is covid and the other one is the pandemic that's always there since people first were on earth which is the communication pandemic right now we're at a high point or a low point you know in many societies in terms of good communication in terms of empathy compassion compromise you know uh, it's not great right now not just in the united states but other places so i think the movie in a way comes out at a time where and all that all those things have to do with good and bad leadership good and bad pa parenting i suppose too but i think the movie if the movie had come out a year ago people would have looked at it maybe they would have liked it i hope so but now it's a little bit different there's another there's another couple of layers to exactly. it i think you know we're also more conscious of older people than usual younger people are conscious of their situation now whereas they weren't no, naturally noticing them very much now they're isolated they have who knows what's going to happen who's taking care of them even a young person might ask themselves that whereas before it's like oh some old guy just limped past me and now he's out of my consciousness no i'm i wonder where he's going who's taking care of him is he afraid you know and also just life you know we're more aware that life is fragile and uncertain it's always that way but Right now, a lot more people are thinking about that. I think that's good. But just to continue your thought there, another quick thing is forgiveness. I mean, this movie is certainly hard occasionally to understand um, your character, the son, the levels of forgiveness that he has to come to in certain scenes there with, with your father. Have you felt in your life that forgiveness has been come easy to you? I can hold a grudge for a short time, but it doesn't usually last that long. Yeah, I'm capable of it. You know, just because you, you can forgive someone, that doesn't mean you forget the damage done. But what you hope is that, like a story like this, the hope is through, through memories of, of a time where family ties, like I was saying, mm -hmm. united John and Willis in a way, through the memory of that, maybe they can overcome some of the damage that they've done to each other and to each other, you know, to themselves and to each other and find a way to accept each other as they are rather than trying to make them be something else all the time the same way i think in society i'm talking about the united states for example right now well i guess i don't know if this will come out now or after november 3rd when will this come before. out? before before okay well the election that's you know next week mm -hmm. in, the, in the u.s i voted i hope you did and by mail not 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 pleasing Mr. Trump, but that's the way it is. And the way it's been for a long time, very normal. Now he's trying to make it seem like it's not normal. But in any case, I hope likewise, just like the family, I hope that society in the US will be able to overcome the damage done by the Trump administration to civility and democracy in, in US society. It's gonna take a while, but um, you know, I think in general for people, uh, the people of the country are more important than Trump or any other president.
society is made of individuals and each little relationship between two people and the next two people, the next, that's what society is, that's what democracy is. Democracy doesn't really exist as a fixed thing any more than a quote unquote good marriage does. It's something you have to work at every day. It's like a give and take thing and you have to do some work, you know? And what I hope is that people can work to remember, recall, similarly bonds, family bonds that did unite them, that did make it possible to meet in the middle somewhere in many things, many, you know, about many things, that it's possible, that there have been times in the United States, like in other societies, where people could find a way to get along and work together. And it doesn't have to be the way it is right now, you know. You don't have to live alone with your fears and doubts. You can share them with other people to start with. And good movie stories um, sometimes can help us to see that, you know, because it takes us outside of our own bubbles and you like seeing people in situations that are extreme, unlikely that they could get along, maybe touching, having a point of contact, even if it's for a brief moment and it's like, okay, there's some hope there. Yeah. Certainly if you cut off a relationship with someone personally or professionally, then you're not going to advance. And if you don't cut it off, no matter how toxic it might be, there's no guarantee that you'll, by insisting on being as stubborn about communicating with a person that say, is as stubborn as you are about not communicating. There's no guarantee that you'll find a point of contact, but you might, it's a possibility. If you cut it off, there's no chance. So that's, that's the choice each person makes, you know? Well, I have to ask you because it's so seldom I meet someone with my similar background. So we're American born, we have the Scandinavian part. I understand you have a Spanish connection. My mother was from Spain. Me hablas muy bien el español. But for me growing up, even though it's been wonderful in ways, it's a very weird mix because these temperaments are so different. Um, how has it been for you? Well, yeah, I mean, my first decade of my life, I was raised in Argentina, which is a very different culture than, say, Denmark. Although, I mean, Denmark, out of Scandinavia, Denmark is, they're a little more goofy and maybe... You're sense much of, more fun. I don't know, there's a, something a little bit wackier, I guess, about the Navy in a way. But there is something, I think, shared in Scandinavia, which is a certain kind of brutal sense of humor. And I found last night, for example, the audience at, at the screening here in Copenhagen, that people were laughing just a little bit more out loud about certain things that in other countries, including Spain, where they were chuckling like, ooh, I don't know if I should be laughing at that. And here it's like, ah, you know. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I think there's, you see that in Scandinavian movies sometimes, that there's sometimes, they're, sometimes they're just, you know, relentlessly grim, but but time, at times they're very funny in a kind of harsh way, you know. There's something absurd about the humor sometimes I find up here, you know, uh, which I like, I share that sense of humor, where you sort of make fun of yourself and often the jokes are like not necessary, and not particularly funny, and that's what makes them funny, you know what I mean? They're about uncomfortable things in life, you know, you know, unfortunate events, and somehow they're funny, you know? I think the Spaniards are very good at that. I'm talking to my cousins through the pandemic. They've, they've been much more under lockdown than we have. They've just been sending funny jokes. Yeah, well, there is a lot of that. You're true. You achieved a level of fame after the Lord of the Rings films that I can hardly fathom how that must have been. But did it help you in any way? Well, it helped me get work. I mean, it helped me work with David Cronenberg and other people. So it helped me in a practical level. And it was also... 
me and the other actor and all the actors involved and some of the crew members too, because it was such a success, we had the doors open to some other possibilities. You know, I was able to be cast in History of Violence and I don't think before Lord of the Rings having that success, I don't think the studio would have agreed right. with David Cronenberg. He might not even thought I was a possibility. So that happened, that's practical and unexpected. But what I learned during the shoot was just watching, which I've been doing always, always been interested in the collective effort of making a movie, was how many problems Peter Jackson and his team solved every day. Hundreds, thousands of problems all through this long, long shoot where they even were inventing ways of shooting things that hadn't been tried. And they just, he took a crew of six, 700 people, mostly New Zealanders who had had little, and in some cases, no experience making movies, certainly a big movie like this, none of them. Um, and by the end of it, they were all experts in many things. You know, he created single-handedly an industry that existed, but it wasn't on that level. It was fascinating to see him solving problems and then really making a movie just like having a relationship or living your daily life, I suppose. But certainly in making a movie, it's a process of solving lots of problems, little ones and big ones on a daily basis. That's what it is. If you don't like that, then you shouldn't do it. But that's what it is. It's no matter how well you prepare, it's obstacles. Oh, it's okay, how do we do this? And the best way is together. It's like, oh, do you have a good idea? No, well, let's try this. No, that doesn't work, let's try it. That's how you do it. It's like writing a piece, I suppose. As a journalist, you are writing a book, you, you reorder, you re-edit until you get the pieces to where you think that works. And making a movie from writing it to casting, to shooting, certainly editing, you're rewriting it again in a way and it's until it feels just right or you run out of time, then it's not there yet, you know? And I, it was fascinating to watch Peter Jackson do that. I learned a lot. You dedicated uh, this movie to your brothers. Um, do, what did they say? What did they feel? Did they recognize anything? Well, I dedicated it to Charles and Walter because I respect, because they share to some degree, you know, the foundation of the story, which is feelings and thoughts about our parents in some way, or the dynamic between our parents when we were really little. And even though there's only a few things in the movie, very few events, moments, and parts of conversations that they would recall from stories that we know and share. I thought out of respect for that shared childhood that we should, and that upbringing, that it would be right to dedicate it to them. And there is, there's very little, but, but, um, but there are some things that are there that are definitely did happen slightly in a different way, but it's for them and probably for, you know, my cousins here in Denmark, like one of them, was there last night and she recognized some things for sure. Oh, wow, that's amazing. That some of them made her laugh and some of them made her cry. You know, so. That's amazing. What, what a thing you did. So I know that they want you to go, but I have to say this will be my 200th episode and I'm so happy that it was you. Well, thank you. Muchas gracias. Muchas Cuídate. gracias a ti. Me gustaría practicar mucho más el español. En otro momento. Tú vives ahí, ¿no? En Madrid, sí. Mi madre era de Valencia. Valencia, Yo presenté la película en Valencia, en muchas ciudades, Barcelona, Zaragoza, Valencia, Madrid, por todos lados, en coche, como ahora. Me imaginan que estaría muy fuerte para los españoles con... La cosa de familia. Sí, ha ido bien en España. Me alegro mucho. Thank Hasta you. Luego. Hasta luego. Gracias.
Thank you so much to Viggo Mortensen. Falling is premiering in Europe this winter. In Sweden, it will be at the Stockholm Film Festival in November, where Mortensen is also receiving the Stockholm Achievement Award 2020. It's premiering in theaters on December 4th. And thank you for listening. See you for the next 200. Don't forget to stay in touch. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.